This restorative justice life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ. Sign up for our email list and check out our website at AmplifyRJ.com to stay up to date on everything we have going on. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And finally, we'd love it if you left us a rating and review. It really helps us literally amplify this work. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. Hello and happy Native American Heritage Month. If you're listening to this on week of release, today is November 1st. And to start this month off, I thought I'd revisit our most downloaded episode of this year so far, my conversation with Dr. Edward Valandra on Unsettling Settlers, Decolonizing Restorative Justice. Dr. Valandra brings so much depth to this conversation that I thought it was really important for us to replay at the beginning of this Native American Heritage Month. So if you missed the conversation earlier this year, sit back, relax, and get ready to soak in all the goodness of this conversation. Also, if you're listening to this on week of release, we're collaborating this month with Emmy Aguilar of Indigenizing Arts Ed to bring a workshop on moving from land acknowledgement to land back. So if you're someone who is concerned about moving from just performative land acknowledgements to tangible actions to decolonizing this place and giving land back to the indigenous caretakers of the land that you're probably sitting or standing on right now, join us for this arts integrated workshop where you'll engage in dialogue, reflection, art making, and collaboration to restore your relationship to the land the water, and yourself. Closed captions will be provided, and the recording will be made available to those who sign up but are unable to attend live. We're running two separate workshops, one on November 5th for people of the global minority, aka non-Indigenous white people, settlers, and on November 12th, we're holding the space for people of the global majority, including Black, Indigenous, people of color. Links for more information and to get tickets in the show notes. But for now, enjoy this conversation with Edward. We'll be back with another episode in this feed on Thursday. Dr. Valandra, it's been a long time coming, but welcome to this restorative justice life. Who are you? <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> I would say that I, I am an indigenous person. Uh, my nation, uh, we call ourselves the Ocheti Shakoi Oyate. Um, our language that we speak is Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota. And um, our territory is the Northern Plains, uh, maybe to give the listeners uh, kind of a geospatial orientation. Um, it, it, it includes all of South Dakota, North Dakota, most of Nebraska, parts of Wyoming, parts of Montana, the Southern provinces of uh, Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Uh, Minnesota as well. So, so we have a very uh, expansive uh, territory, which is settler occupied. Uh, I might add that uh, illegally, of course, but um, that is basically our homeland and uh, born and raised there in what we call, uh, but it's also called the Great Sioux Nation. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, I'm about as indigenous as one can get in North America. Who are you? 
who who am I? <laughs> well, I think uh, <clears throat> the protocols would really demand a lot more detail than I have given within nation. I mean, when we talk to each other, we we go through a whole protocol so we can position ourselves. But I think um, that is something that uh, most uh, settlers um, would be too much detail. For one, it involves the use of, of the Lakota language and you get lost in the, in the nuances. So uh, the, uh, who am I? Um, I would say I am a, um, a resistor, you know, been, been questioning colonization forever. I am a father. I have um, three children. The youngest one is up in uh, British Columbia on the front lines of the uh, Onestotan or Wasotan, um resistance that has caught a lot of attention up in Canada. And she's eight years old and, and she's quite a fighter. Um, she's in the front lines. And uh, so I have to give a shout out to my Wasotan relatives up there in, in their uh, struggle against uh, Coastal Link uh, gas line. And of course, against the province of British Columbia and of course the Canadian settler state itself. So, um, so yeah, a father. And um, also I got several siblings, several relatives. Um, <clears throat> we, in our community, we generally joke that you know, we're practically related uh, to 99% of the population of our nation, uh, just because how we have a kinship system set up. So, that's a little bit more personal uh, biography. I know you said you're going to ask me seven times, but um, hopefully I can take three or four of them at one swap there. Um, the other thing is uh, I've been educated in the West. You know, I have a bachelor's, master's, and PhD. So um, I know that. Uh, so I'm very much Western educated. And I do a lot of writing. You know, one time uh, as an undergraduate, um, I came home to, on a visit, of course, I, uh, back then we had some of the senior citizen centers, not nursing homes or anything, but these were centers for the elderly to come and, you know, provide meals and things like that. And uh, <clears throat> so I dropped in one time just to see uh, my grandmas and grandpas and other elderly of the community. And uh, my grandma, uh, she asked me, um, what was I uh, studying? in college. And um, I had told her that, well, I am studying how the white man thinks. She heard me say, you know, to her ears, she heard me say, I am studying to think like a white man. And uh, I proceeded to get a lecture. And um, in front of all the other elders, and so um, she uh, really lectured me about the strength of the Lakota mind, you know, Lakota logic, the strength of our thinking processes. And, you know, why would I want to think like a white man? Well, of course, I, I, I sat there and I listened. You know, it's not us. It's not for me to, to, to correct an elder in front of every, everyone else, particularly other elders. So I just I sat there and just listened. And then um, after she uh, gave me the lecture, 
I leaned over to her and I said, I said, Grandma, I said, I'm learning how they think. I don't want to think like one. And she said, oh, oh. <laughs> and so that was, you know, and I got those kind of messages the whole time I was getting this westernized education. Community members would always remind me, you know, who I am. And it's okay to get this education, but please do not get seduced by it. Do not get co-opted by it. And just remember who you are. We'll take a couple of the who are you's off there. Let's get two more in. Who are you? Maybe this this might be the, the last one, but um, I, I work for... Um, I work for Living Justice Press, which is a small nonprofit press uh, who specializes in, in circle uh, in circle processes, restorative justice, and restorative practices. And they have an indigenous line as well, but mainly their focus is circles, RJ and RP. And I just came on board with them in June of 2020. So um, I just. Um, recent, but I've been affiliated with Living Justice Press for a long time. I mean, I would engage with them, uh, do some work for them, but I, I, I came on board. And prior to that, I was, um, I was a senior administrator for um, our native school, uh, K-12. Spent four years as a, as a senior administrator focusing on faculty uh, development, professional development. And then before that, before that, I was a university professor for the longest time in Native Studies, so. Beautiful. You got one more in you? Who are you? Uh, gosh, you'd probably have to contact the FBI or someone like that to get that other part, yeah. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for being here. We're going to get into the intersections of so many of those things right after this. Well, Edward, again, thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, thank you for sharing with us um, so much that you've already shared. Uh, it's always good to check in at the start of the conversation. So to the extent that you want to answer the question in this moment, how are you? I am good. I'm, I am uh, um Again, I think I'm busy with some of the projects I think we might mention later on in the program, but I'm good. You know, I'm surviving the cold northern winters up here, um, so that's always good. But overall, yeah, think, thanks for asking. I'm doing doing well. Yeah, and it's, it's so good to hear um, in the midst of everything that's going on in the world, um, we still have the ability to say that we ourselves in the places that we're in um, are well. Um, glad to hear it. As you shared in your introduction, you've been doing this work um, around decolonization and maybe around the words, quote unquote, restorative justice for a long time, but probably before you even knew the words restorative justice, um, both in English and as a concept. So um, in your own words, how did this journey of this, quote unquote, restorative justice life get started for you? You know, back in uh, June of, I mean, not June, but April of uh, 2018, I was at a, I attended a conference and one of the questions uh, related to what, what, what yours is, was, um, you know, how did you come into restorative justice? So my response was, I was born into it, basically. Um, again, we didn't, 
we didn't call it restorative justice, uh, but how we engaged in interpersonal relationships in a community um, really had all the elements that restorative justice talks about, you know, building relationships. And of course, I think the, the what's, what differentiates our, our, our notion of restorative justice is we didn't, we're not so much about uh, building and establish relationships in my community as much as we're born into those relationships. And what I mean by that is we have an extensive kinship system. So um, as you're born into that kinship system, you're already born into a, a mutually set of obligations and responsibilities to your relatives. And so the bottom line of, of, of that kinship system is to do no harm. Of course, we didn't call it restorative justice, but it was the elements that define restorative justice are certainly there. And I think because of, of settler colonialization, you know, um, it's hard to practice that, that kinship system in which you have to be a good relative and you do no harm. And because of, of the westernization effect, um, it has really stressed that, stressed in a way that it, it, it has um, disrupted those systems as we know them. And that probably goes into the notion of decolonization as well. We're doing decolonization work before we even realized it was decolonization. And, um, and so it's interesting as a, as a professor, I, you know, when I would talk to native students about colonization and, and its manifestations, uh, those students would say, well, I felt all of that. I experienced all that, but now I understand the framework of those experiences. In other words, you know, I think sometimes we need a we need some conceptualization to to make sense of the experience. And so uh, again, you know, we we probably have experienced a lot of these things, but when when um, we learn what colonization is, the light bulb goes off. When we become aware of restorative justice, the light bulb goes off, and it's like, yeah, we've been doing that. We understand that's what it is. We just didn't call it that. Yeah. What comes to mind, uh, you know, are the words of Adrian Rich. And they were highlighted to me by uh, Bell Hooks. Uh, Adrian Rich was someone who survived the concentration camps, uh, uh, excuse me, concentration camps in um, Nazi Germany. And, you know, in a poem she wrote to her people, like, these are the colonizers, sorry, these are the oppressors' words. This is, this is the oppressor's language, but I need them uh, to speak with you, right? Um, so to use the link, to use the English language, right, to put things in terms of like colonization and build those frameworks um, to describe the processes, the things that uh, people have encountered, the systems that people have encountered that um, name the harm and show how the harm was systemically built into the way that we are. like is really important. But you, you said a word that has stuck out to me since I heard you speak uh, in Denver in 2019 at the NACRJ conference, and you'll be speaking at the 2022 one uh, this coming summer. But this idea of being good relatives is really at the core of what this is. And restorative justice doesn't really, the words restorative justice don't necessarily equate to 
being good relatives in English. Is there a phrase in one of your languages that really gets to that idea? Because I struggle with like the idea of restorative justice, both the English words being um, colonized words, but like those words also being so limiting to like, oh, how do we repair harm? Um, but is there a phrase or a word um, in one of your languages that really gets to that idea? And I'm not saying that for like appropriation reasons, but like, you know, English is so limited. Well, there's there's actually, um, you know, one of the things about uh, native languages, particularly um, the Lakota languages, it is a very descriptive language. And it's also a verb-based, not noun-based like English. So uh, a lot of the a lot of the words that we have um, exemplify motion or action or the state of being. Even like the 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 the, the word Lakota or Dakota or Nakota, that is a state of being, and that's actually being a relative. You're actually that's verb form in which you're engaged in being a relative and we so so um out of the what would be millions of words um there's one that i hear quite quite frequently uh, among several others but this one about wolakota and wolakota um not a literal translation, but a close translation would 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 mean peace. Yeah, peace or being peaceful. It just really is a word that we hear a lot where I'm from. To be wallakotas, to be at peace, is to be in the act of peace, always, always peaceful intention. Um, so that 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 would be one example, I think, of a vocabulary um, that has meaning that would be related to uh, restorative justice. I think about the the limits of like that literal translation between the between languages, right? Where being at peace um, in English, I'm sure, doesn't like fully describe the idea that you're talking about because within English, right? Uh, there can be like negative peace where like, oh, there's no conflict versus like, oh, we are in good relation. Um, another word um, or phrase um, in Lakota that has resonated with me over time, just because I've been able to identify it across a couple of different languages, like phrases like mitakuyasan, right? Um, we're all relatives or like, and like when I think about um, different indigenous people across the world. Phrases like Ubuntu, like I am, because, you know, we are um, in La Ketch, Alakin, I am another you, you are another me. We think about uh, Babayan, which is a pre-colonial language of the Philippines, Kapwa, right? Um, like the interconnection between all beings. That gets to the idea of like, you know, we're connected, we're relatives, but it's not necessarily about like, I, I think you can assume that like, oh, because of that relationship, be good to each other, be in good relationship, but it doesn't necessarily say that verbiage. And so, yeah, I, I'm just trying to think about words beyond restorative justice, because I think, you know, you've created uh, and you've co-created with uh, many authors this effort of colorizing restorative justice, bringing in voices, centering voices that have not been uh, recognized, privileged, or even acknowledged um, in this 
greater movement that's been happening since the late 70s, early 80s. But I think those words, color right, like restorative justice are so limiting. I'm thinking about like the chapter that Christiane, Erica, and Michelle wrote where it's like, you know, burning this bridge. Like, is this something that we should be even engaging with? And part of me says yes, because like these are common words that um, people are able to grasp onto and we can move them towards uh, being in better relationship with each other reducing harm that's happening within schools, the criminal legal system, uh, society at large. And the other part of me says like, yeah, but we're still bastardizing some of these other ideas. And I don't know that you have like, I'm sure you don't have like, here's the like, cure all silver bullet answer. Uh, but when you think about the use of those words, um, what, what comes up for you? Um, you, you mean like burning, burning the bridge, and no, like uh, using the language restorative justice oh. versus creating something new that we're moving people towards that is more inclusive or more reflective of this relational way of being together. I guess you use the tools at hand, and one of the things I appreciate about restorative justice is one one of the one of the defining um, definitions is to address harms. As a result of wrongdoing, I mean, I think that that has that definition has jumped out at me as, yeah, that that would be that would be a good place to start. But I also know, and there's been criticisms within um, the indigenous world, is especially with settlers, is what is there to restore? What 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 relationship? has there been that needs to be restored? And so one of the criticisms, I think from indigenous peoples, and maybe that may somewhat come out of the burning of the bridges, but I can't really speak for, uh, for the contributors, but it's like, what is it we're trying to restore here? Certainly there's a justice part of that, but if we've not had any, any, any relationship with settlers on a scale of goodwill, of friendship, of reciprocity. It's always been basically a one-way uh, street. Um, I think some of the indigenous people that I've talked about that do this kind of work, they may prefer terms like um, restorative practices, mm -hmm. for example. So I think, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of... Uh, things that are, I think, that are good about restorative justice. But again, you know, it, when we use um, terminology and phrases, we all come to those phrases probably with a different set of experiences. And so it has to be very nuanced as you uh, get into that. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I wrote the, that chapter on, on doing the first harm, settlers in restorative justice. And you know, calling attention to what does it mean to be a settler in restorative justice, particularly with indigenous peoples. You know, the first harm being the theft of land through genocide and every harm, one could argue because of that first harm, all other harms have resulted as, as a result or because of. And so for settlers to talk about restorative justice, um, undoing harms, establishing relationships, 
it, it, it seems somewhat hollow and very superficial as an indigenous person sitting in a room full of settlers and talking about undoing harms. And I'm sitting there going like, well, what about the first harm? Yeah. Why not address that? Why not talk about that and how to make that right? So there, there's a lot of uh, deep self-reflective questions that come up when indigenous peoples and settlers get into the same space. And there's this presumption that we can start at somewhere down the line at, at the at what settlers would determine is restorative justice and indigenous people say, uh-uh, you got to go back to like 1492 mm-hmm. and begin there yeah. and then st- start that process. If we were running a workshop right now, we thinking about like, you know, the harm that happened above the iceberg and then like everything that contributed to it going on underneath the iceberg, those things are deep and within a quote unquote circle process that's happening in a school or something that's happening um, within the criminal legal system where you're just focused on, you know, this student threw a chair across the classroom or this person um, stole from, you know, this uh, from this store. Like, yes, that that's not something that they should have done. Right. But what about the harm that has happened to them? Uh, what about the land theft um, and the genocide? Right. What about um and we can go like up throughout history, like what about the enslavement uh, of their people and kidnapping, right? And then, you know, what about the forced assimilation into boarding schools, right? Separation from their people. What about uh, the systemic um, housing discrimination that um, withdrew resources from certain communities? How are we addressing those harms? You're talking about restoring this, you know, $5 candy bar that somebody took, right? Right. Um, like that that can ring hollow when i read your chapter and i've heard you say before you know the first thing that um many people do when they wake up in the morning is set foot on stolen land right um that's that's a reflection that i think about um because i'm curious for you like do you think about settler colonizers and settler immigrant refugees differently as someone who is biracial right somebody who has dis- uh, who has ancestors that were kidnapped uh, from west africa and someone whose ancestors also um, aligned with uh, U.S. imperialism and joined the U.S. Uh, military from the philippines and then came here like is there a distinction between in your mind between uh, settler colonizers, people who have ancestry in Europe um, and came here, and people who have come here against their will or economic refugees. Well, I think. Well, I think one of the things we have to recognize about settler and settler colonialism, you know, and it's helpful, uh, like Patrick Wolf uh, began that narrative or that dialogue about settler colonialism and he was very emphatic about saying settler colonialism is a structure and not an event so i think to your point of describing earlier you know uh, one of the issues let's say with restorative justice initially was um it was usually between individuals and so it was so so restorative justice uh, dealt with, you know, someone who did a harm and someone who was harmed very much at a, at a micro level of 
of individual to individual, not really understanding the systemic nature of why that is. Economic disparities, health disparities, educational disparities, all these disparities that exist may result from people having to, let's say, in an economically depressed area, maybe, maybe they're engaged in an activity that uh, you know, provides them an income of some kind, but is against the law. And so they go after the superficial behavioral, you broke the law, um, and, but not really going deep into what, what's the structure out there that allows for you know, um, behavior that is deemed um, illegal. So I think moving to that and talking about settlers, I, I tend to look at it as a structure, of course, mm-hmm. that what is it about that structure that makes it so powerful and so enlightening to, you know, to the immigrants that come here? I mean, I'm sure that's the last thing they, they think about is... Right is like, oh, I'm going to become a settler. Well, I think what happens is because of settler colonialism and the structure that in, uh, that's set there, one of the things about being a settler, not explicitly stated, but you're going to displace indigenous peoples. And that, dis- that displacement means either you're going to kill them, remove them, or dispossess them in some form or manner even though you may have come from an area of the world in which you had to leave for economic reasons or for other reasons. So I think one of the things that I would argue about settler colonialism that is not articulated is people then are, and that's why it's a structure because it's past, present, and future. And so what would, it, what would it have been if, if settlers, quote unquote, came to this part of the world and, and said to indigenous peoples, this is your land, we are guests, how can we be in a good way? Can you imagine? And well, it's even hard to imagine that now, but the initial settlers had in their power to say there are indigenous peoples here, they own this land, what is it that we can do in order to make our lives better? And I think that's part of the issue. I think so. so, And there are, and and you've raised the question, but there are other writings just now coming out where we have settlers of color now who are beginning to say, what is this thing called settler colonialism? And what's my role in that? Because as settlers of color, they're still they're still oppressed by racism. And we see that in the states when you hear white settlers telling settlers of color that they're not legitimate settlers. In other words, they're not entitled to all the rights and privileges and immunities that white settlers have. And so there's, so that's something I think settlers of color are going to have to kind of negotiate that space of, of um, yeah, they're settlers, but because of racism, they, not, they, might, they might not be legitimate settlers. The birther movement, <laughs> all of this stuff. 
so so even within that settler sphere settlers themselves are trying to determine who is the authentic settler and i think that is something that they have to work out but for us settlers are going to have to i i think when we when we say settlers yeah it's it's people who who have come to displace us and have and through this notion of the logic of elimination there's a lot of structural things in place that are genocidal and so when 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 people come to this country as immigrants i mean that's the big story right this is a this is the land of immigrants this is a country of immigrants that's erasure right there i'm not an immigrant we have stories going back <laughs> since time immemorial that we we were always here and i challenge any settler to find a native origin story that says they crossed the bering strait zero all our stories of of our origins are somewhere on this western hemisphere so when the immigrant story or when the story is told that this is a nation of immigrants were erased right off the bat can a settler honestly feel good about that that they're erasing millions of people that's already been here before they even knew this part of the world even existed and that legacy is still continuous so those are the deep questions and this is one of the reasons I talk about when when indigenous people walk into a room full of settlers, settler fragility sets in right away because our very presence contests their legitimacy in this world. And so, so the, the notion of authenticity comes into play because one of the things is settler colonialism is supposed to, is all about erasure the logic of elimination. So if we're still here, then that upsets the settler narrative. It unsettles them. And heaven forbid, should, a, should an indigenous person walk into a circle of settlers or a room full of settlers and say, we have the right to coexist. Not only that, but we have, we want land returned. And then you know, like white fragility, settler, settler fragility sets in too. And then we have this discomfort and awkwardness and that, but that's fine. I think, you know, Erica Little Wolf has said to whites and settlers alike, just sit in that zone of discomfort. It's good for you. It's healing for you. It's not always a bad thing, the fact that you feel threatened yeah i think one of the things that people jump to is like well what do we do about it right how do we fix it and it's it's not that simple to say land back right it's just like saying like reparations great what does that mean i think there are larger systemic things that can happen that I'll admit, like, I don't necessarily have the vision for, um, because, you know, you can think about things that have been done, like in Oklahoma recently, but on a national level, like even Canada, who went through a quote unquote, truth and reconciliation process, like, like, what has that actually resulted in? What are impacts of either like micro or macro land back efforts that you've seen work well, like both on a systemic or like, 
I, I appreciate the framing that you gave around, you know, we're guests. How do we coexist uh, in a good way in this in this space that is, you know, yours and your ancestors? Well, what's interesting about the settler narrative is they make they make they make it they make it such that for indigenous people to ask for the return of land, they make that sound like that's a huge ask. Mm-hmm. But what settlers don't realize is they've asked so much from us. So if we have a document called a treaty that outlines our territory, and in that treaty it says no, basically it says no settler shall ever be in that area because it's recognized as our nation. And then in the 21st century, there's settlers all over our homelands. That's not a big ask to, ask, to, to question those settlers. What are you doing here? You know, and they get offended. And then you show them this document called a treaty, which is an international agreement between two nations. And you read that line to them, it says right here, it says, other than indigenous people, no one else has a right to be here. So what are you doing here? And that's not even a big ask. That's something that let's say my Lakota ancestors and the settlers' ancestors said back in 1868, this, this, this area is, will be recognized as the Lakota nation or the great Sioux nation. And they have all the sovereignty of any nation in the world. So forward, a hundred and some years later, we have settlers all over our homelands. And I would argue if those are those are the undocumented immigrants. What are they doing here? And so when you just ask that question, you, you see settlers get upset, they get angry, they start, you know, then they and then they just for asking a question. And, and it's not even a big ask. We're just saying, you, you made an agreement with us. Why don't you honor it? What kind of people are you that make agreements and don't honor them? You might have a PR problem as a result of that, not only among indigenous people, but all, all other nations of the globe might look at settlers from the US as not being worthy of, of their word. So it has broader implications. I think what may bother settlers is, as indigenous people, we've known settlers longer than almost anyone in the entire world. So we know the deep, so we know the, we know their deep, dark secrets. We know where the skeletons are buried. And we know that settlers' closets, their skeletons still have meat on them. So this becomes one of, of deep issues of who you are as a person. Who do you represent? I mean, what do you represent? That is perhaps the, the ethical and moral dilemma when indigenous peoples and settlers face each other. You know, we, we have to, we have to have that honest and authentic conversation. As uncomfortable as that might be, it still is one that has to happen.
and I appreciate you bringing Erica's words and like to be able to sit in that uncomfortability is what's so necessary. I mean, it's what restorative justice practitioners ask everyone to do when you come into a circle process where you're confronting the harm that um, either you have caused or the harm that, you know, has uh, happened to you. Like that is, that is a place of growth. And, you know, if we're being true to quote unquote restorative principles, right? Like there is no predetermined outcome of like X, Y, Z, this is what happens like it's it's both in like that internal reflection and within the context of the relationship that we move towards being back or being back in good relationship or like creating a relationship that is good in balance um have there been like like i appreciate you going where you did with that but i'm thinking what comes to mind is like have there been examples that come to mind for you of that happening well on a micro or macro level well, it's, it's interesting that you could, we talk about the, 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 the micro level. I mean, I think it's one thing to engage on a one-to-one level. And that's one thing. I think there have been settlers who have taken actions as allies. And so, so that's much appreciated. You know, the, the, the one-to-one level certainly doesn't, you know, reflect that structural dimension. I mean, I have, I have met many white settlers who don't agree with um, what's going on with, um, you know, the, um, with respect to the land return issue. I mean, there are allies for that, but this has to be really at a, at a more of a group level, a larger level, because I've heard over the course of my life, you know, many, Many white settlers who disagree with um, why not just return the land? Well, that's only one voice, and but I I I I, I think yeah, it has to happen at a, at a people's to people's level. Really, it does it because the the numbers aren't just there. Um, so many settlers from cradle to grave are inculcated with this settler narrative they can't even they can't even think outside of that framework and then they personalize it so much so an educative process about who settlers are what their behavioral patterns consist of what their narrative is i mean it's a huge undertaking and um so to answer your question i haven't really seen that that happened at a at a micro level. I have seen, and I'm looking at one. I think the the Taos people in the Southwest had had returned to them. I think twenty thousand acres of of land to them, but that that is such an outlier. And then what I and when I seen my um, Wasotan relatives up in British Columbia. Now there, I think that's such a good model for settlers of how to address issues because the settlers there stepped up when the RCMPs went in and started um, assaulting the sovereignty of the Wasotan people. And and what happened across Canada, I think in February of 2020, uh, settlers in support of the Wasotan people shut down Canada for a period of a week or something like that. 
So there's, there's examples, I think, up in Canada that might help serve as a roadmap to how settlers can really become allies and then develop those crucial relationships that are going to serve everyone down the line, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. I mean, this is a long-term resistance, you know. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about 500 years um, plus, and, right. you know, we're talking about small actions that happen, but like those things do add up. There are things that you're calling for people who are settlers, not even just people who call themselves, quote unquote, restorative justice practitioners to think about. And I think that's really, really helpful, really insightful. And I know that I'm going to listen back on this conversation and do a little bit more reflection. I'm sure others will too. But, you know, you talked about how you started working with Living Justice Press um, a couple years back to bring about a project around centering voices that have been historically marginalized, erased, excluded from this greater restorative justice movement. It culminated in this book uh, called Colorizing Restorative Justice. We've had many of the contributing authors on these airwaves, but uh, can you talk about the origins of that project and uh, why it was important for you to, uh, you know, bring these voices together? You know, uh, Denise Baton, who's the executive director of LJP, I, I think we should give a shout out to her. Um, she tells a, she'll tell a better story than I will, but uh, she was doing a, like an ad for, for their uh, books. And she recalls seeing in that ad, you know, they, they featured some of the authors and they were all white. Mm -hmm. And she said that was, um, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, but it sounded to me like that was an epiphany for her. I mean, she's been thinking about other voices non-white voices, but that ad, and then just seeing basically all white authors or pictures of all white authors, at that point, she had just said, we got to do something. I have to do something. And because I had an association with LJP for you know several years, we had a talk and I said, well, let's, I, I suggest that what we do is let's, let's do a call. And so, um, you know, and, and we've heard criticism of restorative justice, the ones that you were raising in this podcast. I mean, they were out there. So then when we put the call together, we wanted to say, you know, what has been kind of the journey of restorative justice up to that point. And so I, I did a lot of research. I, you know, went to a lot of the databases and did search terms on restorative justice, restorative practice. And I don't know, I must've downloaded about 75 articles from over a 30 year period. And it was very clear that much of RJ has been written by whites. And that was very clear in the literature. And so it supported what, let's say practitioners of color we're saying about their marginalized role in restorative justice. Who gets the gigs? Who gets invited to speak? Who gets the circle key? Who gets credential? I mean, all these questions. So then that's the, so then, so we put out a call. We did, and to be honest, we didn't really know what to expect. We didn't know if we'd get, because we asked for abstracts basically. And uh, we didn't know if we were going to get you know, a dozen, we had no idea. And we ended up with 
64 submissions of abstracts. And so that was a, so that told us that people of color and indigenous people in restorative justice are restorative practice are in community justice are trans, um, um, trans, transformational justice, social justice, that, that, that resonated with them. So we got that many. And of course, then we had to go through and select the ones that we had, the contributors now. And I would have to say it was very, it was a very difficult choice because we, we if we tried to publish every one, we'd have like a eight volume set of colorizing RJ. And um, so that was the origins of that um, call. And then of the book, it, it was saying that um, people of color, indigenous people that have been involved in restorative justice or restorative practices really had something, really had something to contribute and say about the state of restorative justice or restorative practice. And so, you know, I, I have to give a shout out to all those who submitted an abstract. And then for those contributors who submitted their manuscripts, you know, they're the real heroes in all of this. I mean, they, they were the ones that really made it pop. And, um, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm just grateful that people stepped up and submitted things uh, for this call. So that, that's kind of the, the short story of, of CRJ. It was fun working with all of them. You know, we have, we have become a community in and of ourselves. Um, and so again, that, that has been, a, for me, it's been very um, affirming that, that I think communities of color, indigenous people have always taken a critical look at the status quo in this country and have applied their, those critical frameworks to make restorative justice a lot more accessible and open. Um, so, so it's been a good, it's been good in a lot of ways. And I, and I really am happy with, with the result of, of that process. Yeah. What are some of the things that stand out to you as like, oh, I'm so glad that this has happened. One of the things I know you're going to say, just the relationships that you have with all of those authors. <laughs> so let's, I'll give you your piece to say that, but um, external impact, like what are some of the things that you've seen as well? I think it has shifted the conversation in the restorative justice movement or the restorative practice movement. I, I think having a text like CRJ in the hands of RJ practitioners of color and indigenous can, can hold on to that um, book and say, you know, we've been, these are the things we have been thinking about. 20 other people are also thinking about this and it's in print and it's a hard copy. It's, you know, it's, it's very, it's very material. You can hold on to it and you can reference it and then they can go into their circle. Um, their organizations are, are in their communities and say, people have been, you know, people are naming these things now. They're voicing their realities, if you will. And these are all experience based. So I think that has shifted the conversation 
and the restorative justice movement and restorative practices to one in which, you know, things like race gets centered now. I mean, it, it, it is, it, it's no longer one of those um, silences that just sit there. I think settler colonialism is, has been outed in a way. So I, I think what that has done, it has encouraged or stimulated a dialogue within the restorative justice movement about its shortcomings and what can, what can be done more to make it more representative and reflective of the communities that are using it. So I think that's one of the major things that, that has happened. It, it certainly has shifted the, the conversation. Yeah, I can definitely like reflect just on my work when within the context of Amplify RJ, when I talk about values of restorative justice being equity, um, of course, as a Black and Filipino person, I'm thinking through a racial lens. And when I say equity, I'm not just talking about like, treat everybody the same. I'm talking about what are the things that um, folks all across intersectional identities, both their race, but gender, sexual orientation, religion, socioeconomic status, etc. cetera. Uh, but like, you know, race was just thrown in there. Um, not just because of this book, um, also because of the quote unquote recal, sorry, racial reckoning of 2020. Like it's been even more important for me to say like, this is re uh, restorative justice with an anti-racist lens, right? Um, and I've seen many practitioners across the space um, having to do that. Some of them still haven't, but we're, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get there hopefully, or hopefully, you know, people will, will be able to start challenge, like, challenging, why isn't this lens showing up in your work? And like, to your point, this has been a great way for people to uh, engage in that dialogue. You have, uh, and I know you've gotten lots of feedback from people all across the country, um, so much so that um, you're coming up with a second volume and there's currently a call out for submission. So do you want to tell us about um, what what that is and you know how people can submit and get involved, what you're looking for? Yeah, you know, um... Sometimes um, this notion of racial reckoning happening in the U.S. and all and in all parts of the world, um, you know, the timing of the CRJ, you know, what happened with George Floyd and the other killings of of unarmed uh, black men and women and youth. Um, I, I think you know CRJ came out at a time when it was, it was obviously glaring, the root of racism is just alive and well. It's so resilient, right? So, so CRJ came into this conversation um, about, you know, racism. So, so I, I think it was very, um, it was just really good timing uh, and we didn't plan it that way. It just, it was supposed to happen that way. And so, so then once, uh, once we published and then people were engaging the book, um, we decided we wanted to do another project of this, of this magnitude and of this nature. And um, Denise Patan, again, who's the executive director of LJP, we had, we had settled on doing um, another call, but it's called Colorizing Circle Practices, Naming the Silences. 
And so, um, you know, basically, um, we're still pushing the envelope on that, where what are what are some of the silences that that manifest themselves in these circles? Um, I think we're trying to go more for talking about the more systemic racism that's out there, not just the individual things. So, so we, so we want to say, you know, as we enter these circles, we just can't, we just can't leave our experiences, our cultural upbringing, how we see the world, as you said, you know, through whatever lens we have, we just cannot, um, as we enter the circle, we just can't leave them outside that circle and go and just agree to a certain, um, certain prescriptions and hope that does it. So we're hoping that, um, you know, when we name these silences, whatever those silences might be, that, that, that just adds that next layer or that other discussion about restorative justice and restorative practices and what goes on in circles. I think we're really wanting to, because of colorizing restorative justice and voicing our realities, now we're looking at circles. You know, we looked at RJ in a larger sense. Now, what's going on in those circles? What is it? What does it mean to be in a racially mixed group of people? And what are those dynamics that happen there? And and we want to talk about those. And and of course, you know as well as I do. I know as as Native people, when we're in a circle, we're more relaxed, we're more engaged, we're more animated. And then when we then when we have um, uh, circles of color, which you know, we have the black and brown brothers and sisters. That's also, that's also such an engaging dynamic. And then yet when a white enters that circle, I see the dy- dynamics begin to shift. And why is that? I mean, back home in my community, man, if, we, if the community members are engaged and, and a white person walks in, we just, we just shift. And I, know, and I know whites do the same thing you know, the small towns in rural South Dakota go to the local cafe or go to the local McDonald's and you see all these white guys sitting around having coffee. You walk in, they all stop talking too. You know, so so there's something going on. I don't know if it's a racial dynamic or whatever that is, but um, I think we want to talk about what goes on in those circles or how we understand and process those circles. And, and we talked about naming the silences. So we're hoping that people will really bring um, insights into that, into the circle dynamics. So, you know, maybe someone might have a practice that colorizes that circle in a good way. And that'd be interesting to know or find out and read about. You know, we, we hope that, um, this next volume will again get people to to make submissions and and we're we're excited about it. Um, we think it'll be this this next book project will be just as strong or as um, stimulating as the first one. Well, Edward, thank you so much. Uh, before we have you sign off, there are questions that everybody who comes on this podcast answers. So, are you ready? Sure. In your own words, restorative justice is making things right, making things right. Um, and what I mean by that is, is acknowledging a harm has been done 
and and how to make it right and and i think that is that is to me what restorative justice is again i don't want to get into the details but i think i have I have ideas of how to make things right with respect to my nation and my people. Um, so that's it. How to make things right. Thank you. Um, as you've been doing this work, um, and we can say this work broadly in whatever way you want to interpret this, what's been an oh shit moment or a moment that you messed up or a moment where it's like, oh, I wish I did something totally different. And what did you learn? Uh, what, what I have learned is that I, I wish... I wish that we um, could have done more in terms of um, and likely do it in the future. But, but, but I think one of the things that contributors have done for the first book is how they much engaged that material and really had a lot of discussions around that, whether they be Zoom discussions or webinars or things like that. They they were the ones that really sold the book. And I think that is, that is something that we've learned as, and something we didn't really anticipate because we we're thinking about, well, how do we get the word out? Well, we found out that the contributors, our authors, are the greatest advertisers for their work. And so that was really a, something that we, took and learned and hopefully we'll do it for this next next one too how we should have done things different i i think we should have done put a, and we might still put a blurb out on what we expect of abstracts and i was trying to maybe do that in this podcast beautiful well you know people have now listened people know where to get clarification if there is any so we'll make sure that um you know people are able to get in touch and share um, with all the people they need to um, and ask the questions that they need to. Um, you get to sit in circle with four people living or past. Who are they? What is the question you ask the circle? Oh my gosh. Um, okay. So four people that I would, ask is um i know one one well known in our in our nation his name is uh, uh tashunka we call settlers know know him as crazy horse um there would be tatanka uh tatanka iokate which is sitting bull um and then inkbaluta who is um um that one's kind of hard to translate Scarlet Point. And then the fourth one would be like, man, I don't know who the fourth one would be. Maybe Vine Deloria Jr. who would be who would be there or John Mohawk from the Seneca Nation. But these are basically all Lakota people. And, and I guess I would ask them why they, they fought so hard against the overwhelming odds what, why was that important to them? Why did they feel it was so important to even give up their lives for their own nation, knowing that all the odds um, would indicate that their 
the resistance is futile. It's almost like the Ukrainians against the Russians of today, like outgunned, outmanned, outresourced, and yet they decided that it was worth the fight. And, I, and that's what I would ask them. Yeah. I know that you are not literally out there um, writing and shooting, but you know, why do you do it? <laughs> well, I, I think, I think it's because I think in all these, in all these, um, my experiences over the years and, and my relationships that I've had with settlers and non-settlers alike is that I think the, the Lakota people, my nation, um, we have a, we have a right to coexist irrespective of what the settler narrative says or what others say, uh, you know, we are, we were here hundreds of thousands of years before settlers ever came. And I want another thousand years from now to be a Lakota people. I don't know how that would look, but I just want us to always be here. So, yeah, I think, I think coexistence is such a, an important and beautiful thing. And I just wanna ensure that, that we are here, that we, do, that we have a right to, to exist as a, as a nation and as a people. We have, much, we have much to contribute to the globe. Absolutely, yeah, thank you. Um, what's one thing or a mantra or affirmation you want everyone listening to this to know? Well, you know, I always talk about uh, what it means to be a good relative. And that I think is 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 key. Um, and what I mean by being a good relative is is just not in the in the human sphere of things, but in the in the sense of the natural world as well. Because um, I think to be a good relative really uh, puts you on the spot in terms of what your obligations are and what your responsibilities are, and and that as a result of that, of being a good relative, you ensure that um, we also have another saying other than midakoye oyasne, which is all my relations, but we do these things so that the people may live. And I think to experience this life in human form is worth the journey. Um, and, and so I think that's part of, of, of our growth as 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 people we you know we start this journey we end this journey and what was the quality of that journey were, were you a good relative did you do any harm and if you did how did you how did you make it right you know i first encountered you three years ago now at this point and that that specific call has been something that i've like come back to a lot so one to you, thank you, um, and to our listeners. I hope that that you're able to sit with that um, as you navigate the rest of today, um, and as you go about, you know, the rest of your week and life moving forward. It's been a really helpful reframe for me. That what does it mean to be a good relative? Um, now, those two more questions: Who's one person that I should have on the podcast? And you got to help me out. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, I, I think it would be important for um, 
I, I would I would nominate um, Denise Breton only because she is a settler. She's white. She's female. But what was her internal, you know, dynamics that were going on? Like what what made her gyroscope align itself so she should go this way? And I think her message may have resonance with maybe the the white listeners of the podcast as well as uh, people of color when it gets when it gets down to this larger framework of racial reckoning. Um, I think when whites uh, stand up and step up, it, it has an impact on other whites. So I would, I would say she might be an individual you might want to uh, put on the podcast. And I'm sure that I can get that introductory email from you. <laughs> and then finally, uh, how and where can people support your work in the ways that you want to be supported? Well, you know, um, I think having more engagement with the contributors of the CRJ for the for the communities of color, indigenous communities, please submit manuscripts. Uh, even outside the call itself, we're always open to uh, having full length manuscripts done. Or if you have a project, we're lo- we're looking at manuscripts that deal with circles and restorative justice and restorative practices. Um, so we're always looking for that. Um, education seems to be the big thing where RJ and RP is um, at, but um, yeah, I would say to support, we could, we, we are, we're just open to getting full, full length manuscripts submitted so we can look at them and engaging the authors about their manuscript ideas, whether it whether it be a good fit for publishing for them and for us. So that's, that's another one. Full length manuscripts would be good. Beautiful. Well, uh, that's a call. That's a challenge to, to many uh, out there who I know have so much to contribute to uh, this work in this space. Um, Dr. Valandra, thank you so much. Um, this conversation has uh, both warmed my heart and like challenged me a lot. Um, and I'm hoping that it's done the same for many of our listeners. Uh, anything else you want to leave the people with? Just be safe and um, be a good relative. Yeah, be a good relative. You heard it. Um, thank you, everybody, so much for uh, taking a listen this week. We'll be back with another wonderful conversation uh, with someone living this restorative justice life. Uh, until then, take care. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. Or if you're old school, tell a friend. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also support us by following us on our social platforms, signing up for our email list, signing up for a community gathering, workshop, or course. So many options. Links to everything in the show notes. Or on our website, amplifyrj.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.